Hi, this is Diane Carbo with Caregiver Relief, and today I have with me our end-of-life specialist, Pat Deegan. She is also a regular podcast contributor, and today we are going to talk about the stages of death and dying and when death is imminent. Uh, Pat, you and I are both seasoned nurses, probably have over 100 years of experience between the two of us. Uh, but we've been at the bedside of, of many patients that have died. Before we start, though, Pat, I have to share a story with you and the listeners that uh, happened to me over the weekend. And it, it's just a commentary on where we are in, the, in our culture. I'm, I dog sit for friends. I have this, uh, two dogs that I'm sitting for. Beckham ha- has been on seizure medicines for a while. While I was here, he had three grand mal seizures on Saturday. Now, he's a big guy. He's a 150-pound baby. What seems to be an interminable amount of time uh, when somebody goes into a seizure, whether it's a person or dog, you just go automatically into how long it was going to be. Anyway, they were 90 seconds. He had the first one, and I thought, okay, he's having a breakthrough through his medicines. Anyway, long story short, he had a second one within an hour. So I uh, was challenged, but I got him into my car, and I took him to the ER vet. Now, here's the, the surprising thing that happened. While I'm in the parking lot filling out the paperwork because of COVID, they don't want you in, poor Beckham is in my back seat having a third seizure. So I yell out to them to, that he's having a third seizure, that I just wanted them to observe it so that they knew what was going on. As they give me the paperwork to fill out, the question that they asked me brought not only tears to my eyes, but was a shock. If he stops breathing or his heart stops, do you want CPR on this animal? On your pet. You know what, Pat? I was in shock. I, I really was. My first response was, oh, my God, please don't let him die. Of course, he's not my dog. So I said, yes, absolutely. You must do everything that possibly can be done for him. After I said that, I started asking questions because the nurse in me kicks in. We are trained to be, not be emotional but be logical. So the next step is, I said to them as they were carrying him into the um, office, I said, what, what does CPR entail for a dog? I said, will you break his ribs? Will he need to be ventilated? Uh, what do you do for him? And if his brain is so bad that he's having all these seizures, which is something that happens to adults, humans, as well as, as animals, well, we need to make a decision to have him removed from these sustaining things if he doesn't come back. And, and all those were questions I asked. And I wanted to know if he was that bad and his heart stopped or he stopped breathing and they did CPR. What medicines would they be sending him on if they could resuscitate him? Anyway, long story short, we no longer as a culture accept death and dying as a natural process. Not even for our pets. And people do not understand that death is a natural process. 
Yes, it is. What was the outcome? I'm curious to know. How was the dog? I am blessed and grateful he didn't stop breathing and didn't his heart didn't stop, and they didn't have to make that decision. Now he's on some god-awful, terrible medication, uh, which has left him very unsteady and eating and drinking a lot. Uh, here's the other a point I'm going to make before we get on to our death and dying process uh, conversation is we choose to take medicines, we choose to take treatments. We don't know the consequences of those decisions and what the side effects are going to be, whether it be from a seizure medication or a chemo or whatever. And sometimes the treatment is worse than the relief of death. I'm just going to say that. It's going to make some people very unhappy, but anyway, I said it. And I love this pet, and God bless him. It's been challenging. His folks are out of town. They're out of the country. I have been very challenged in uh, trying to provide care for him because he's got some terrible side effects. But uh, they're hoping that he will improve. But anyway, this is what people are going to deal with their pets now, not just with our family members. So let's start about death is a dying process. Okay. Yes. Question. With dogs, now this is all new. I'm just as surprised as you were. How are they going to know what the public now, if it's not like people like yourself or myself, to even consider that they have to think about, let's say, a DNR on their animals? You know what, Pat? That's a good question. And I don't know. I have to tell you that I think that we're in a culture where what, it's seen as a failure if someone or uh, even a pet dies. And I think that the fear of death is so great that uh, people don't want to accept it. And they don't understand that the consequences of extending life, it's not quality of life all the time. And it's just the a quantity of time. And they don't understand that it, it can cause pain and suffering to extend life. So let's talk about the death and dying. There are stages of dying. And you have worked hospice for many years. Let's discuss what goes on. First, I'd like to start with our bodies decline. And some of us, it's a slow decline. And some of us, it's a more rapid decline. And as a death and dying process, uh, according to hospice, can take minutes to months. But before before um, we start the active dying process, I want people to understand that souls are the biggest number one reason that the that show that a person is starting a physical decline. And I don't think many people realize that uh, souls are detrimental and can often. Uh, rush a decline. So we have signs that your body is going to shut down in the active stages of dying. So let's talk about that, Pat. Okay. Um, I th well, there's a couple of profound things if we want to say that death comes at its own time and in its own way. It really does. Everybody's different. It's not a, a book type thing that this is going to happen and this and that. It's unique to the individual and how they live and how they express themselves. I'm going to try to go through a scenario as if I were taking care of a patient that was dying. So between one and, say, three months maybe, actually probably starts the dying process, although we don't see it as such. And it 
will bring us up to about two weeks before they are dying. The patient becomes extremely withdrawn. He acknowledges in, internally, oh, yeah, I know I'm dying, that kind of thing. But he has no interest, like, in the newspapers, TV, or visiting from a relative or anything. He's just closing himself off. But the, the, the process, and this is only because I've seen it so many times, it will appear that the patient is sleeping all the time or his eyes are closed. But that doesn't really mean that's what he is. He is internally going through the process of leaving this world and going into another one. One thing I will say that I've noticed time and time again, even though they are withdrawn and seem not to be responsive, the idea of, of touching their hand or touching their face or saying something to them, you will see a shift where they might turn towards you because they're acknowledging the fact that you're there. And I, I don't think people think of that. They don't want to be bothered with the, the TV and the drone on and on. And this is very distressful. Yeah, this is very distressful for family members to deal with because they start their anticipatory grieving process. But family members also, we'll talk about this as we go along, but family members uh, want to do something and inter intervene in some way. And it's not always possible to do that, or should you? And I think in response to what you're saying, we as a public think that we have to eat to stay healthy and eat and you'll feel better and all this. And food is probably one of the things that the patient probably doesn't want at all. And it, it'll start gradually. Oh, the meat's too tough or, oh, it, I don't like the taste of it or something. So they'll go to softer foods that you know, are more palatable. And then they get to the point where all they want really are like liquids. And I think I told a story last week about my, my daughter when my husband was dying. She was so excited that he wanted a popsicle because she equated yeah. that with he's feeling better. This is good for him. But I think we tend to forget as, as a whole, unless you're in the nursing profession, that when the body's dying, all the systems in our body, the kidneys, the lungs, everything, they are also slowing down and they're not capable of the metabolizing of these foods. And it can definitely caused a decrease in their pain level. And I don't, we don't stop to think of that because we're just concerned if they got to eat something. You know what? I just had a post on uh, one of the forums that I'm on. A caregiver was so upset because her mother hadn't eaten in two or three days, hadn't had anything to drink. And she was just beside herself and saying that she was going to sue the facility for neglect, for not force-feeding her mom. And then, of course, I always hear, they're killing my mother or my father. And again, it's an emotional response, but there's logic behind what is going on. And that's what we're here today is to take the mystery away, give you an educated and un understanding of what happens in the death and dying process so you can understand and not feel so compelled to uh, fight the death and dying process. Very good. I think that somewhere between maybe one or two weeks before death, now I think I said before, everybody's different. There's a increase in their uh, disorientation. They want to sleep a lot. They can be awake, a bit like more confused. My husband saw his mother, so they see relatives or people sometimes when they're dozing and stuff, and this really alarms people. Because they think, oh, my God, what's happening now? And, but this happens more often than not, that they will be seeing people or talking to them. Exactly. I've seen this, too, where they become paranoid and aggressive and agitated because at, at the end and fearful. 
uh, not for any reason other than they're having hallucinations. At this point, like you said, they might be picking at their clothes or the, the bed linens. They're, they're very preoccupied. Maybe that's the way I want to say it. And at this point, yes. if you were a nurse or if you had a nurse come in, there's blood pressure changes, pulse changes. It can go very high and then it can go very low. And this is just because there's just not enough oxygen in the, the blood for the heart to pump into these particular extremities. And this is where you'll also see some modeling, shall we call it, or blotchy skin uh, points like on the buttocks and stuff of the legs, and the, especially the nail bed. Uh, they'll be a much different color. All these things are happening all at once, but and most people won't pick up on them until it's right smack in front of their face. But these are gradual yeah. things that are also helping. What you'll also see I don't know if the patient had a catheter or if they were just incontinent. You'll see a change in the color of their urine as it gets closer time to death. It'll become more concentrated. Instead of a regular pale yellow that we would have, it would maybe get a little bit uh, darker and then turn maybe a little bit orange and then a little bit darker. And that's just telling you that the kidneys are shutting down and it's just a matter of maybe a day or two. But yes, yes. My perspective of seeing it so many times. Um, yeah, some people can last as long as I've had clients, and I'm sure you do, that have lasted seven to ten days. Yeah. And it's just that they've retained fluids for so long. I do want to uh, step back a moment and say the the skin of the feet and hands becomes a purplish gray uh, color and blotchy, and it that makes people very frightened. But again, it's due to the decrease of the blood pressure, the decrease in the heart, the way it's working and functioning, and the lack of oxygen to the extremities. And that frightens people. Yeah. You'll see uh, with their breathing, it might become very congested. They can't clear their throat and cough it up. But again, this is normal. You bite up. There's all kinds of breathing. They'll breathe for a minute, and it looks like, oh, my gosh, they're not breathing because it might take a little bit longer than no gas for breath and stuff. And then you know that death is accordingly just around the corner almost. At some point around this time, the one or two days, they'll become unresponsive. You cannot arouse them at any point. And I think, yeah. and this is my own observation, how we or the patient, how, how they approach death, I think depends on how they live their life. I'm convinced with that. And how much did they participate in their life and with other people? And if they're willing to let go, I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. And the fear of unfinished business. I know I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again and again. If there's been a, a fracture in a relationship or something has to be resolved, this is holding them back from, from actually leaving this material world. And that can cause a great deal of resistance in actually meeting their death head on. And it usually at this point, breathing stops. And it's funny, it's not funny, but they'll stop and you'll think, oh, he's gone. And then frequently they'll be, they'll take a, another last breath and everyone gets excited thinking, oh, they're, they're coming back, but it's not. It's just the body releasing the rest of the oxygen. Exactly, yes. One of the things when my husband was dying, now this is many years ago, oh, so it may not make sense now, but the last couple of days, and I knew it was just a matter of the day or two, he'd say to me, Pat, what's today's date? And I'd go, no, no, today is such and such. The next day, Pat, what's today's date? And I would tell him again, and I'd say, why is he so fixated? He said, what day it is? So then on the third day, he said, what's today's date? And I told him, 
and he died three three hours later. And I am convinced that he stayed alive long enough so that I would get his Social Security check for that month. There was no you know what? Nothing surprises me. Yes, they hold on. Like I said, my dad held on to my brother just to come back home, and I've seen this many times. That you were talking about the coughing and the, and the noisy breathing that happens in the throat, and people know this as the death rattle. And it doesn't happen in everybody, but it does happen in most people. And I think this is one of the most frightening things that caregivers uh, face when they ha are at home and alone as a family member is dying. And they feel helpless and afraid. And there are medicines that can be given. There are also treatments, breathing treatments that vaporizers that you can turn a person on their side to help uh, alleviate some of that, reposition their, their head differently. This is where I think hospice has uh, let people down on in some areas, Pat, because as there are good hospices, there are bad. When you and I were out in, in the hospice world, and, in, and we had people that would come and, and be volunteers and support. That doesn't happen all the time anymore through the end of life. Family members are not aware, uneducated in, in the death and dying process, and are uh, left alone a lot of times to deal with it and feeling very frightened. And it's sad because if this was explained to them ahead of time, which is what we're trying to do and support them, it, it would help them to not feel the, the, the severe anxiety and be as frightened as they are as their loved one is dying. And I think with hospice, of course, we keep going back to hospice, but I, I love that job. The nurse, oh, I did anyway. I would always try to tell the families what to expect now, next, even with my children. Now, this is what's going to happen next to daddy so that, they kind of could prepare themselves for this, even though it was a shock when it happened. But what I like to do, and again, it depends on the family and how much they're involved. I would have them help me bathe him or turn him over. And I have more than once asked the wife, in fact, they were all women, now that I think of it, it when after they, her husband had died, would they like to help me clean the patient and put maybe pajamas on or whatever like that before the uh, undertakers came? How... They were so glad to be able to participate. They were comforted. They, they, yes, they were. Yes. Yes. I know from my situation, my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and they put him on hospice right away, and he was told he had six months to live. And, of course, that's the, the, the criteria to be on hospice is six months or less to live. Now, my dad did live much longer, much longer as in we were blessed to have him for 14 months post-diagnosis. Oh uh, and he, I know, the thing is, Pat, he, he did have a lipid procedure, which, uh, w which helped him. That's a terrible procedure that he went through. When they put him on hospice, he had planned uh, a few months to go to Hawaii. And we were living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Hawaii's a long way away. But he went every other year for six weeks. Him and my stepmother, I said to them, look, keep your plans and we could put you on hospice there. Dad, if, if Hawaii was his happy place. So let's just make plans to get you there. And we talked as a family. If, if you die over there, Dad, it's okay. We said our goodbyes before we trip. And my dad went over there and we got him there. 
and he actually took him off hospice because he was doing so well. And he had six amazing weeks. But then again, it's, and spirit was lifted. He was in his happy place. He, it was wonderful. The day before he was to come home, he started feeling ill. And we did have a few one months before, before he passed. I actually took off work for a year to help care for him. And the surprising thing is that he, he did last so long, but his blood sugars would go up and down. And he would be so low, but he wouldn't even have the symptoms of it. It was like he'd have a blood sugar of 30. He didn't have any signs and symptoms of low blood sugar, which was very strange. It's funny that you said that because with my husband, his blood sugar could be up into 300, and that's where he felt the best, and he functioned the best. When it was down in normal limits, he was miserable. Yeah, you know what? Everybody's different. So my dad went through his death and dying process. Uh, we had two days where I could see that he wasn't doing well and we got a hospital bed in right away hospice was already with us but we brought a hospital bed in because uh, he just said I'm just not feeling well you could tell his time was getting near he was frail we had a 48 hour vigil at the house where uh, we were all around him and we cared for him and turned him and, and, and cleaned him up as he uh, was going through his death and dying process my dad went into a coma uh, two days uh, before he passed. People don't understand. You would still care for the body because you don't want it to break down and you want to provide as much comfort as you can for somebody. We went through, his hands started to go cold and his backside and his legs, his feet were the purplish gray and watching my family members. None of them in the healthcare profession were just beside themselves. And I had a diaper on him, and they were all shocked that I was checking it to see if he had any output. And, of course, his, he didn't, had very little, and that upset them. Why isn't he peeing? Why isn't he? It was very frustrating for them and frightening for them. He also came to have the death rattle. I gave him the medications that were provided, and we turned him in, and I still give, gave him skin care, doing his lotion and stuff. But you could always tell that the change in the breathing is the shallow, rapid breath, followed by periods of no breathing at all, is the family was just beside themselves. So I know what, you know, but I was there to say, it's okay, this is normal. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because they, they don't know. So all the information you can share just makes it that much easier for the families to witness some of those things that you mentioned, because it is very distressing. It, it is for the family. And they want to know, are they in pain? Are they suffering? And no, they're not. I also want people to know that hearing is absolutely the last sense to go. And it's always important to talk to your family member through alcohol. This is more important for the family members than it is for the person that's dying because people need to be able to say things that they may have waited too long to say. It's, it's a time for them to work through their uh, unresolved issues as well. And I think that's very important. Yeah. Oh, it really yes. is because 
how many times you know, oh, I never had a chance to say goodbye or I never had a chance to say I'm sorry. When you've got the what kind of care being given to the patient as well as the family, that doesn't happen as often. It's it, it, a lot more pleasant. And in this society where we not only fear death, but our communications have gone from talking to texting and emails, it, it's really sad because we don't have the bonds. A lot of people don't have the bonds that they had before. So providing this care at the end of life really can strengthen and be satisfying to family members that feel that uh, they've missed something or wish they had done more. Yeah, and I think and it you know, falls into place. That's really what you can call a good death because everything is, you know, as it should be. It really is. When people say to me, what is a good death? I think a, a, a good death is when you've planned your death as far as all done everything you could possibly do as to take away the stress and anxiety of your family members by doing your DNR, your end-of-life planning, your advanced planning, getting your advanced directives in place, telling your family members what you want is, is nice, and then telling them, I want hospice or I want you to be with me at around me uh, is really important, and I think it, it, it gives people a sense of calm and closure and I, too, like you, Pat, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been with families uh, after the person has passed. And it's time we need to clean them up and bathe them. It's a very humbling experience. I, I remember as a young nurse, there are two young women that had a father die. And I said to them, would you like to help me? bathe him and prepare his body before the undertaker comes and uh, they were shocked oh my god that's my father oh i can't do it i can't see him naked or whatever and i said to them i will tell you this is one of the most humbling experiences you're ever going to have in your entire life and i said we can do it so that it's in a dignified manner so that you don't feel uncomfortable and those two girls and they weren't girls, they were in their 30s, sobbed as they were bathing their dad and were so glad that they had that opportunity to care for him. It was their one last um, act of love for him. Exactly. That was it. And, and it's the right thing to do. Yeah. People yes. No, because they just don't want to. But I think given the choice, most people would accept it. And be very great. It's just one of the things we need to understand is everybody's timeline for death, like you had said, is so different. But I think understanding the final stages of death, it's not that you aren't going to feel pain because the person, the family members then have their grieving process to go through. They have to deal with bereavement. And I think that's really important. Uh, some family members feel relief at death. And then they feel guilty about that. But if you've been providing care for so long that you have neglected yourself, your other relationships in your life, it's okay to feel that relief because you have given and given and you have no more to give. And you've already grieved the loss of your family member a long time ago. Yes, that's very true. That's a good point. I, I did not bring up, but that's very important. 
yeah, because you're great. If you've worked through it and what's happening, and it makes it a lot easier. And then by accepting of it, you can help your children or the people that are are not doing so well. So, oh, I see it. Yeah. I do too, Pat. I do too. Pat, this has been a really tough discussion, and I'm so glad we did this because I think that end-of-life planning and a, a good death means planning for the end of your life. And I think one of the things that we're going to talk about, I'd like to talk about next week, is organ donation and donating your body to science because that's a, a, a process that many people want to do, and they have no clues about it. Um, religion plays a big part in that too, and we'll go. I think I've got some information on that. I would love that. I think that would be a great topic next week. Is the death and dying and, and the cultures and how we need to respect those. Absolutely. As we discuss, absolutely. because there are some religions that would just absolutely not want your body donated to science or organs donated, and uh, those are issues that we can discuss. So that'll be our next week's topic. Okay.